Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Purple Stars podcast. I'm Sarah, your host, and we are so excited about today's guest. She's Italy's HSI director and animal rights advocate, radio host, and author. She is known for her dedication, hard work, and also has a very enchanting personality. Let's dive into her expertise and please welcome Martina Pluda. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for hosting me. It's such a pleasure. Every project you undertake is so nice and so well thought. It's really just such an honor to be part of this. Thank you so much. I've seen on social media, you have been so, so, so busy the last few weeks, especially. And that's something I want to dive right in, if that's okay for you, because I've seen they've been incredibly intense on so many levels. How did you manage to cope with the stress, especially on an emotional level? Well, this is... Uh... The million dollar question, I think uh, I am kind of used to it. I work as an animal advocate and therefore I am faced every day with difficult situations, with challenges, challenging with a lot of animal cruelty. And I am, of course, highly motivated to fight it. And therefore I have, you know, kind of an armor against it, which allows me to do my job. Nonetheless, it doesn't mean that I am not personally affected by what is happening, that I am not you know, touched and, and saddened by recent events. So what has happened in Italy just a few weeks ago, police broke into an animal sanctuary and together with state vets, they have euthanized nine pigs who had found shelter at this sanctuary. And this is because African swine fever, which is a very uh, infectious and deadly disease for pigs, has been spreading across the region where the sanctuary is located. And basically this disease hits pigs and also swines in general, and it's a massive threat to the industrial pork industry. So to safeguard this industry and to safeguard its profits, animals are being killed to halt the spread. And it's incredibly sad that also animals who are part of a different system, who have been removed from that terrible profit-oriented system, have also fallen victims of those same laws and same logics that regulate industrial animal agriculture. Oh, wow. And just for people to know, because you are the di director at HSI in Italy, this is just one, one thing that's on your plate that you're advocating for and that you are trying to make a positive change. Could you share more about HSI for those who are not familiar with it? And also, especially what is your mission and your focus of your position in that company? Sure. So HSI, or Humane Society International, is an international animal protection charity which works to advance the welfare of animals in more than 50 countries. So we work around the globe to promote the human-animal bond, rescue and prote protect dogs and cats, improve farm animal welfare, protect wildlife, promote animal-free testing and research, respond to disasters, and confront cruelty to animals in all its forms. So as you said, I am HSI's country director in Italy, and I lead and coordinate our efforts in and mission in the country. And I oversee all our activities and campaigns. And the objective is always to create a more humane world for animals. This is, uh, leads me to, uh, to our next question as an animal rights advocate. 
How do you perceive and address the legal distinction of animals that are considered as objects in most countries, while only in a very few countries like UK and Spain, um, animals are recognized as sentient beings? How does we are very curious how does this uh, legal difference impact your effort and strategies in advocating for animal rights and also improved welfare? I think this is such an interesting question, so thank you for asking it. I think that this says a lot about the way we as a society and our legal system view and value animals. As you said, in many countries around the world, including Italy, animals are still considered as legal things, you know, like a book, a chair, a car, anything which is not animated, as opposed to having something which is called legal personhood. So legal personhood is a status granted to individuals or entities that endows them with certain rights and responsibilities recognized by the law. So humans have legal personhood, corporations have legal personhood, but animals do not. And, you know, this is this is quite incredible. And this is despite science and in Europe, something called Article 13 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union recognize animals as sentient beings and require policies to pay full regard to their welfare and to their requirements. I must say, though, that also countries who have moved away from classifying animals as things have not necessarily granted them rights. So in most cases, animals are simply classified as something which is called non-things things, with legislation stating basically that animals are not considered as things, but the same provisions will apply when specific legislation doesn't exist. So. We are certainly still very far away from granting animals rights, such as the right to freedom or bodily integrity. Sure, we grant them different you know, degrees of protection, but society and therefore also the legal system do make clear and, in my view, cruel distinctions and differences between artificial animal categories. Because let's bear in mind that these categories like farm animals, wild animals, companion animals, these are all artificial categories that we have put in place. So while, for example, neutering a dog without anesthesia is considered animal cruelty and is certainly banned by all European legislations, castrating piglets who are less than seven days old without it is perfectly legal and standard practice in the pork industry. And this is a perfect example of this kind of dichotomy. So the challenges I face are mostly based on this bias and on the fact that a lot of the animal cruelty I, I fight is perfectly legal. So the strategies hmm. to change these policies, these provisions, the laws start way, way back. So they start with changing the public perception on certain animals and certain exploitative industries. They start with dismantling the idea that animals or certain animals are commodities rather than individuals and that they have needs and are deserving of protection. And why not? Right. So you said it's, it's, a, it's a long way until... A lot of com uh, um, countries are going to change the law. What do you think or what do you suggest that we as individuals can do along the way until law reflects what animals actually deserve? So law has oftentimes followed what society has deemed appropriate or, or modern or current with the times. So I think as soon as... Uh, enough minds will shift, so will the legislation. So it's important for citizens to speak their minds. And the way citizens speak their minds is by 
purchasing certain products and not purchasing other products. We have a lot of power as consumers with the way we spend our money and with the way we act at the supermarket, for example, or at the restaurant or at, you know, an apparel store. So the way we buy tells a lot about where our morals and our values are. So I think that people need to, first of all, inform themselves about certain industries where, for example, their food comes from, where their wool sweater comes from, and then, you know, take decisions accordingly and distance themselves from certain practices, which are, as I mentioned, perhaps legal and, you know, make a clear statement. I do, do not want to partake in these industries. I do not want to spend money for these cruel practices. I wish to see them banned. I do not wish to buy these products. So I think this is where we can have a say and, and obviously also vote, you know, vote for the right people, vote for those representatives who care about animals and who care about the environment. For people who are new to the subject of consumption, you know, like making a right choice. What would you suggest for people who want to be more mindful of it? How can they take the first step of informing themselves? And what are the things that they should look out for? Because I know online, there is just so much information. And sometimes we don't really know what is the right information, what is not. When it, Maybe we, we talk about clothes, because everyone needs clothes. What would you suggest looking into and taking more responsibility when purchasing clothes? So I think the first step is not is to avoid assuming that a lot of the animal-based materials are are kind of leftovers of other industries. So let me explain better. Often we tend to think that leather or down are, for example, the kind of the leftovers of the dairy or beef industry. Or for example, you know, ducks may be used to produce eggs or meat or other products. And therefore, why not recycle, you know, their skins or their feathers since we are exploiting them anyways. But this is not always the case. These industries have have reached such an, you know, such an extent that they often need to produce these things themselves. So they are not it's not necessarily, you know, kind of a, a circular economy thing. And for example, when we think about down that we can find in almost all our winter jackets, right? And and in our duvets, these feathers often come from very, very exploitative industries, such as the industry of foie gras, which is considered a delicacy in countries like France. But we know that this is a very cruel practice where, you know, ducks and geese are force-fed. They are, you know, held by their necks. They are fed multiple times a day. Their liver grows to such an extent that they are sick. And then After they are killed to collect the liver, their feathers are sold to the down industry. In some other instances, for example, the animals are not even dead before they are plucked. So there is this practice called life plucking, and this is also extremely cruel. So I think whenever we approach a purchase, it, it, it would be good to have a look at the materials and are they of animal origin or are they plant-based? And if they're of animal origin, how are they sourced? How were these animals treated? And I must say, unfortunately, that in, in most of the cases, although brands may bear, you know, their own labels and tell you that everything has been done humanely and um, that the welfare of animals has been considered, unfortunately, it's not the case. There are standard industry practices that are spread across the board 
and unfortunately most of the clothes will have will, will be produced with these practices so one one more uh, quick example is wool 90% of the of global wool comes from australia australia breeds these sheep which have an incredible amount of wrinkles and this is because more wrinkles means more skin and more skin means more surface for wool to grow on and amongst these wrinkles there is a fly which makes its nest and the larvas grow there this creates horrible infections and basically to avoid these infections pieces of skin are simply cut off the sheep this without anesthesia or anything this causes horrible wounds and obviously blood and so unfortunately if we buy wood wool we are close to 90% buying wool sourced from you know cruel practices such as mulesing so as you said it is terribly complex and i think most consumers are simply not aware that this is happening mm. they're simply not aware that you know animals have to be exploited to these extents for you know something which is just so normal and daily to us like wearing a sweater or putting on some shoes but it it's certainly you know a good choice to just go beyond the object and look at the you know ethics of our choices and how you know these objects are sourced so martina you are italian which means you are a fashionista you have a great sense of fashion <laughs> for everyone out there who because i know a lot of people who love to dress nicely they always think they need to compromise on the style when looking out for more sustainable clothes for eco-friendly for recycled clothes how could you maybe even convince them that that's not the case so you can feel great in your clothes love what you're buying and at the same time being mindful and caring about the environment well i think i don't have to convince them i think there's plenty of great designers out there who will be able to convince them so really just google you know vegan fashion and you can find you know anything from you know let's say lower end to upper end just think about stella mccartney she was one of the first mm -hmm. all vegan designers and i think her clothes look amazing it's certainly not a compromise on style and then i think we also do not need to buy new necessarily i i personally believe that it's perfectly fine to buy pre-loved clothes and to buy you know pre-loved wool and pre-loved leather pre-loved jacket i think everything which has already been produced shouldn't go to waste and so i think you know if you want to have a go at that designer bag and you know find it on on a second-hand platform then why not i think it's just about not buying new <laughs> new mm. pieces of clothing or accessories that are sourced with animal materials and then again it's it's a matter of you know kind of consciousness of ethics it's about where you draw your personal line i certainly have you know my morals and and i know where i draw that line but i think it's it's not a matter of being perfect it's a matter of being aware and starting to take those steps to be a better consumer a more informed consumer a more ethical consumer I love how you say it's about knowing where your own morals are and where to draw that line, because there are a lot of advocates in whatever industry it is that have, that could consider one moral as a standard, 
And that's why it's sometimes it's tough for drawing in new people because everyone feels judged. Everyone feels la like putting a label on, on their f forehead. And I love that you are open and that you, without judgment, say, okay, I have my own morals. I have my own standards. I'm educating. And please, whatever you feel comfortable with, introduce this to your life and try it. And I think especially with consuming clothes, it's a great way to go for pre-loved. It saves a lot of money. Clothes that someone else doesn't want anymore can get some life and color back. And at the same time, we are more mindful about the environment. And you're right. There are so many designers now out there that really offer clothes and accessories where we do not have to compromise in our style. So they are already building the bridges that are necessary for us to, to make a change. And I... I also would love to talk next about, because I think when we're talking about environment, we have a huge bond with animals. And I would love to discuss the importance of human and animal bond. Like we all know it's, it's a huge gift of love, but it's much more than that. We, there's so much re research out there that the human animal bond has for both the animals and the humans, a huge benefit on the mental level, on the emotional level, spiritual level, and even socially. What are some personal stories and anecdotes that, you, that showcase the effects of human-animal bond that you would love to share when it comes to that question? Sure. So I think, as you said, like, any person who has an animal companion knows this, the, as you said, you know, the, the love, the, the relationship and, and people who have an animal companion probably knew this before, you know, the science confirmed it. And when addressing the question about the human animal bond, I think it's important to underline that we are not necessarily talking about, you know, the human dog relationship or the human pet relationship in the stricter sense of the term, but about human animal bond. Animals are so much more than just the animals that we have traditionally seen as pets, like cats and dogs, right? So people nowadays are changing their perception and they are starting to have amazing relationships also with chickens, with cows, with pigs, with, you know, rescued wildlife, with insects, you know, like you see these really sweet, sweet videos of people rescuing bees, you know, and just letting them fly off into the garden and so on. So, so yeah, so I could tell you about the bond I have with my dog, but this would probably sound very familiar to many podcast listeners. So I have two other stories that I have come across through my work and my personal engagement with animals that I would like to share instead. The first one is connected to the war in Ukraine. I have been, you know, engaged with our, with HSI's response efforts to support refugees and their pets as they fled the countries and their country and came, you know, to other European countries. And in this context, millions of people fled from Ukraine and never before had we seen so many refugees take their pets with them. This has been really an incredible, incredible amount of animals fleeing. And I think this is a testament to the unique and poignant dimension that human and that the human animal bond can take in the context of conflicts and emergency situations, becoming even more profound and significant than it may have been before. So I have met many refugees with their pets and 
literally each one of them told me that leaving their animal behind was was not an option, that they had not even considered it, and that they would have done everything in their power to ensure that the whole family could remain united. So in having this continued contact with them over many, many months, you know, we were offering them supplies and veterinary care. So I have met with these people many, many times and with their animals. I noticed how the human-animal bond became for them the space of comfort and emotional support mm -hmm. amidst trauma and uncertainty, uncertainty, especially for kids. It became the space for the continuity of normalcy, despite the upheaval and the displacement. It became also the space of companionship to overcome loneliness and isolation in a completely new environment, in a place where, you know, they did not speak the language, they did not have connections, they did not have family. So I think in kind of in summary, with this first story, I think the human-animal bond in the context of war and displacement is is really complex and emotionally charged, but it's a it's an it's a crucial aspect of the refugee experience and efforts to provide assistance and resources to both humans and animals in such situations can have a profound impact on the well-being and resilience of those affected. So both on the animals and on on their humans. Yeah. When when you started talking, I got goosebumps. I also teared up because. Uh, it's an answer I did not expect at all, because you're right. Usually people share with their own dogs, their own cats and animals that they have in their own environment. And it's so touching to hear the story about refugees. Uh, I know, um, especially I was I was in Austria when everything happened. I think everyone still knows where they were when the news came out. And also the first thing we did, we donated money we you know medical care we also for people that came with their dogs we we provided our product number one calm to help the dogs with their stress level and it's it's it, it's just such a beautiful gift to that dogs give us any day but especially in times of hardship indeed and 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 that it's really what we need in hardship. It's something that gives us safety, comfort, and especially in an environment where something is constantly changing, where we don't speak the language, where we lost our home, that we know, okay, we can build the home within us with our family. Whether it's, you know, whether we could take the siblings, the parents, the grandparents, the pets, and just knowing, okay, we strip down to everything that really matters in life. And, and that's what, that's what we will use as our fuel of strength to keep going forward, wherever it's going to be. And that it's a deep source of hope. Absolutely. Let me add then one, one story, which... I had not programmed to share, but I will because it, it just ties in so perfectly with what you just said. And it's still part of this, you know, refugee relief operation that we set up. So one of one of the, um, the refugee families I met had actually arrived to Italy without companion animals. They have five daughters and one of them stopped speaking because of all the trauma and everything that was going on around her. So they decided to do something beautiful. They decided to adopt a dog. And the cat. And I just thought this was su such a wonderful and powerful story of, you know, 
displaced humans and displaced non-human animals coming together and helping each other by, you know, by rescuing these two animals. They have changed the life of these two individual animals, but these two animals have also changed the life of their family because their daughter started speaking again. She started going out. She started having, you know, a purpose which was taking care of these animals. So, yeah, it's just such an incredible story. I get goosebumps as well when I mm-hmm. when I share this story because it's one of those stories that has touched me profoundly and which I have witnessed in first person. So it's really beautiful. And it's it's a very important point in times of hardship, what you said is having a purpose. And especially for kids, not knowing what is happening, not being able to grasp what is happening. I mean, even us adults, most of the time when something happens, we don't know what is happening. But for kids, it's even more difficult to understand why they suddenly had to leave, why the parents are crying, why why they can't see their friends anymore. And and I love that the parents reacted in such a caring and giving way that they really understood well her sign of crying for help with being silent. And that they chose such a beautiful way to help her and not just her, but also two beautiful animals. And that it was a cycle that, you know, became complete and full, that they could help one another. And it really shows that healing doesn't need words. Yes, that's true. And animals in that way are really the best therapists, the best coaches. They're just, yeah, it's, and it's amazing how much they give and how grateful they are if we, if we also offer them a home, wherever that's going to be. And yeah, wow, what a, how, what two beautiful stories. And you mentioned earlier, you wanted to share, we wanted to share another story. Could you, could you share sure. that one as well, please? I'd be happy. I, I, I think we have the time, so I will, I'll go for yes. it. So the, the second, which is now the third story, is from a couple I have had the pleasure to meet. They are called Massimo and Lucia. And basically a few years ago, they started a little goat farm in the countryside, about two hours away from where I live. And they had this kind of bucolic, romantic idea of owning their farm, you know, leaving the big city, producing goat milk and cheese on a small and like slow scale, nothing intensive, following, you know, the natural cycles and so on and so on. And as they started to, you know, develop and form their herd of goats, they also started to create bonds with these animals. They all have a name, you know, they all have their personalities and, you know, they know them. They they know who is who. At the same time, though, they started to realize that in order for their business to be profitable, in order to be able to, you know, live with this business, they had to adhere to the same production logic of big scale animal farming mm-hmm. with all that this entails, such as artificial insemination, separation of mothers and kids, euthanasia of sick animals, and so on. So basically, they thought they could work differently, they could you know, have a different kind of farming, but this is simply not possible. And it's simply not possible because alternatives do not exist. Vets, for example, Mm -hmm. are not trained to cure certain animals beyond a certain point. We are just not used to seeing, you know, an old pig, an old cow, an old goat. They, They don't live that long because we 
send them to slaughter before that. So Massimo and Lucia rebelled to the system and they made a promise to their goats that they uh, were never going to be exploited or killed for profit. And I think their story and their change of heart, mm -hmm. which I have now you know, had to shrink in a few minutes because of time, is a testimony to how we can look beyond species boundaries and how we can mm -hmm. extend our circle of compassion to include non-human animals and other living beings. So they now have a, a, a sanctuary. And in the meantime, they have rescued also other animals. They have now a cow, a pig, some cat colonies, very cute kittens. And I think animal sanctuaries are also a very interesting example of how the human-animal bond can, you know, develop in ways which we maybe didn't even know were possible. So these, these places not only offer a second chance at life for animals who have, you know, endured neglect, abuse mm -hmm. or exploitation, but they also serve as you know, powerful reminders of the profound bond that can exist between humans and other animals when you know, compassion, empathy, and care are at the core of it, when we are able to look beyond these categories that, as I mentioned, are you know, artificial categories that we have created you know, to put animals in boxes. So, so yes, it goes beyond cats and dogs mm -hmm. for sure. I, I am a huge fan of sanctuaries. I've, I've read up a, a lot about it in the UN, United States, and some of them offer time and therapy sessions, especially for kids with cancer and their families, so they can part. You know, they can process what's happening and release some of that pressure and sadness, and also uncertainty and fear. And they also have donkeys and goats and cats and dogs, it just and horses especially. And I, I and that's just also another powerful example how healing that how healing time with animals can be. Okay. Because especially when something, especially imagining for young kids where they also again do not understand what is happening. To create a safe haven for them is one of the biggest gifts we can offer throughout that time. Absolutely. And this kind of closes the circle with your first question, you know, with what has been going on in my life and work in the past few weeks and with what has happened in this sanctuary in Italy. I, I talked to you about, about the nine pigs being, you know, killed brutally mm -hmm. and, and, you know, without justification. It's just because the bonds that, you know, people who work at the sanctuary who own the sanctuary, volunteers, but even visitors, the bonds that they can create with these animals are so profound that, you know, it is a very traumatic experience when suddenly this bond is broken so violently by people who, you know, simply do not recognize its value. You know, I think we, we tend to empathize more with the animals we know. So we tend to mm -hmm. understand that there is a bond between people and their dogs. But we have a very difficult time in seeing that similar bonds can be created also with donkey, a cow, a pig, a chicken. And, and therefore, you know, I think more stories like this one need to be told. And, you know, more animals, like let's say non-traditional companion animals need to be shown. Um, and, and this is why I think in the past few weeks in Italy, people have been really vocal about what happened in this sanctuary because they were not just pigs. They were somebody's family. They were, you know, somebody's companions. Mm. And, you know, and I think 
the same way that we would want to go to a vet and, and you know, say goodbye in the most humane possible way. This was the same desire that these sanctuary owners had for their animals, for their companions, for their pigs. And the fact that they were just so, you know, brutally, you know, killed with activists being brutally beaten by police, people who wanted to avoid the killing of these animals. I think this really, you know, left a scar in in the whole animal protection movement in Italy and in many people who, you know, mm. are just compassionate and passionate about animals. Martina, how can we help kids especially to a bigger bond and feel more affection towards non-traditional animals like cats and dogs, which they already have at home or their neighbors or their grandparents? Like, how can we help them? Because I can imagine, especially at a young age, a lot of the mindset and a lot of the bond and associations are already built and set in young young in the early years like how would you what would you suggest to parents or grandparents like how can they support their kids to have a more open mindset when it comes to animals well i think it's certainly a challenge especially for kids and parents who live in cities because you know the the distance between you know you us and nature and other animals is 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 greater so it's definitely a challenge, but it can be overcome. And as you said, like visiting sanctuaries has such an important, you know, role. And then I think it's also about the things that we do not do with children that, that help shape, you know, their compassion and empathy towards animals. For example, not taking kids to the zoo, not taking kids to, you know, aquariums, to places that simply, you know, cage animals that keep them in an environment which is not their natural environment, which does not meet all of their ethological needs, which does not always put welfare at the forefront. And it's not just about not going to these places, but also explaining why. And, you know, kids understand. They are, they, they, they really understand. They are so much more compassionate than us adults. And I have, I really do not remember who said this, but It was something along the lines, you know, if if you put a rabbit and an apple next to a baby, the baby will try to eat the apple and will want to pet the rabbit, not vice mm. versa. So I think I think this kind of shows that, you know, at heart and as kids, we, we love animals. We see them already as our friends and our companions. It's just we are then taught which ones we should love and which ones are okay to be eaten or used or worn. So I think it's about having those conversations with kids without fear that they might not understand. And you, we don't need to shock them, of course, with gruesome pictures or videos. But it's, you know, just about explaining that, for example, the piece of meat does not exist just like that, you know, that it's not just mm -hmm. a, a product from the supermarket and that it comes from an animal, an animal that, you know, had to die for it to become meat. But this, of course, requires also parents who are willing to have those conversations, mm. who are, you know, willing to, you know, walk that path. And not everybody is. There are certainly a lot of barriers to, you know, uh, shifting one's mindset and one's approach to certain topics, such as, you know, changing the perspective of which animals we love and which animals we instead 
use, eat, consume, and um, basically do not even see. You mentioned the zoo, and I remember when I was around six years old, my my dad had this conversation with me about the zoo, and he said, because I couldn't really understand why we didn't go to the zoo like everyone else, and he said, well, you got to imagine you would only get a tiny little part of the bathroom, and that's where you need to be forever. He said, and that's how it feels for a lioness to be in the part that she gets. And that really like hit me so hard. And I thought, wow, yeah, it's true. And then he said, and now imagine people paying and coming and looking around in the little bathroom. And then I never asked about the sewer again. And I actually told all my friends, I said, can you imagine like for us as kids, it, it seems so big. You know, like all the hectares yeah. they get. And I was like, wow, it must be great for them. But actually, if you put it in the grand scheme and scale it down to us little kids, it is very small. It is very small. And you're right. It's, it's our responsibility as parents to have those hard conversations and trying to also find a language maybe speaking in, in pictures so kids can better understand about the consequences and also make better choices themselves and build different associations with certain animals. So they know, oh, pigs are as valuable as dogs and cats. Absolutely. It's about, mm. you know, teaching respect towards all living beings. Yeah. You know, whether they are, you know, in our living room or out on the street, like, you know, I, I often see kids kicking pigeons and, you know, I, I know that collectively we don't love pigeons, but this still is not a justification for, you know, for us to teach or <laughs> let our children mm. run around kicking them, you know, just, mm. just let them, just let them be, just let them exist. You know, they, they do not harm you. So why should you? Also, we teach kids something way more universal when we talk about animals because it teaches them same as as humans we are all valuable no matter the color no matter the size no matter the origin and it's exactly the same for animals and yes some we like more some we like less but it's really about having the respect and granting the respect to each being whether it's on two legs four legs three legs and so it's definitely teaching a powerful life lesson so we're in 40 minutes and there's so much more we would love to talk about and martina and i already expected that so that's why up front in our preparation time we decided to split our conversation in two parts so you can get the most of it a little spoiler part two is going to be released next week and if you love this one Oh my God. Part two, you will love even more because we are going to dive into very personal areas which you will resonate with. So if you loved this episode, please share it with your family and friends. Don't forget to tag us. And thanks for tuning in. And we're so excited to see you next Wednesday.